0: Blog TALK RADIO yeah.
1: All right, everyone. Thanks for joining us today. We have a special edition of Theology Matters. I've been looking forward to this show for quite some time, actually. I've set this uh, informal debate up, and that's what it is. It's the informal uh, discussion debate uh, between uh, a good friend of mine, Shandon Guthrie, who uh, I'll tell you about a little more about him in a minute, and uh, friend I just met, Daniel, who is uh, agnostic atheist. And uh, today, what we're going to do is spend the next two hours uh, having them kind of both uh, give their case for and against the existence of God. So the first hour, Shandon Guthrie is going to present two or three arguments for the existence of God. And uh, after he gives the arguments, we'll allow, you know, 15, 20 minutes or so uh, for them to both kind of go back and forth and just have a dialogue on that. And then the second hour, uh, I'm going to let my friend Daniel take about 10 minutes or so and just kind of set up his his position and then give uh, a few reasons as to why he thinks Uh, that it's not likely that God exists or that he doesn't find the evidence for the existence of God uh, very compelling. So uh, let me tell you a little bit about these gentlemen representing the Christian view. Uh, I should just say the theist view because this debate uh, is not, I don't know if Shandon is gonna be particularly giving arguments uh, for the Christian God or just theism in general but uh, representing theism will be Shandon Guffrey. He has earned earned both a master's degree in theology and philosophy, and is currently um, uh, pursuing a doctorate in philosophy from Manchester uh, Metropolitan University. He's currently visiting lecturer of philosophy as well as faculty uh, advisor at uh, University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Representing the uh, atheistic and agnostic view, I guess, would be uh, Daniel Shalit, I believe that's how you say his name, and after starting uh, pre-med track, Daniel received a BA in English Literature from uh, Binghamton, Binghamton University, and a MED in Curriculum and Instruction with a concentration in Cognitive Linguistics from University of Texas, Austin. Over the years, he has taught college discussions courses, and has currently been teaching high school physics uh, for several years. So this this promises to be uh, a very good discussion. So I'll go ahead and, and bring them on. Shandon and Daniel, are you guys there?
2: Yes, sir. Yes, I'm here.
1: All right. Uh, did you guys have anything to say before we get going?
2: I was just going to just a quick erratum there. Uh, I actually don't have a master's in theology, though I did attend seminary. So just to sort of adjust that little bias, I appreciate the honorary masters, by the way, but I do want to be forthcoming about that.
3: And great. I actually wanted to uh, thank Divin very much uh, for the invitation and Shandon for uh, providing a partner for discussion.
2: Yes, and and same to you. I appreciate the opportunity to be able to share uh, with you and to have this dialogue this evening.
1: Great. All right. Well, that's wonderful. With uh with that being said, uh, Shandon, I'll go ahead and, and turn it to you. We uh, have only burned up a few minutes, so with that being said, I'll just uh, I'll turn it over to you. And what I told them was, you know, it's my desire to stay out of this uh, as much as possible. We've hosted a few other debates on the show. We had Matt Dillahunty on. We've done some Roman Catholic versus Protestant debates, and uh, you know, it's my desire just to kind of stay out of it and let the let the, the guys talk because you guys rather hear them than. Than me, I'd rather hear them than me. <laughs> so, uh, like I told them, as long as, long as it's uh, civil and they're not, you know, talking over each other, then uh, my desire is just to be able to stay out of it. So, with that, Shandon, I will turn it over to you for the next hour, sir.
2: All right, thank you, Devin. Um, I appreciate again this opportunity. And um, I, in terms of the thesis, so to speak, uh, sounds a little ambiguous in the sense that. Uh, Is there evidence for God's existence versus does uh, God exist or not, and and do we lack such evidence? So uh, sort of forgiving the uh, itinerary for just a moment, I'm going to take this as just a simplified uh, discussion about whether God exists or not, and if the evidence should should so conform to that, that that would be um, all the better. So let me just start by defining some terms. Uh, Devin, you'd ask if I was going to be partisan about this and support the Christian God. Uh, I would say from the philosophical standpoint, the answer is yes. But as such, I will not be delving into the resurrection. So in the interest of time, let me define some terms. And I'll scale down to two arguments here. I just want to stick maybe just one. We'll see uh, as time progresses. Um, Now, let me start by defining what I mean by God. by God, I'm referring to a personal being that I think is the creator and sustainer of the universe and so is naturally situated beyond it. And this is a being who is endowed with the superlative attributes of things like omniscience, omnipotence, and omnibenevolence. By contrast, then, atheism, I, I mean by this view, such a, a worldview, whether Daniel actually holds this or not, Um, such that it denies that there is such a thing as God. Atheism proper, then, is not the mere absence of belief in God, nor the mere absence of belief. So I'm going to present two arguments that I actually think, in shouldering my burden of proof here, that I think individually and collectively show God's existence to be more probably true than atheism. So these can be taken independently or in a cumulative fashion and in probability discussions, taking these together, I think, strengthens the entire case. So let me start with a moral argument, uh, maybe somewhat familiar, but I kind of have a different angle on this in a sense. In his Treatise of Human Nature, David Hume um, had argued that, that reason alone will not precipitate moral behavior because there are no mere facts about the world that inherently motivate behavior. This is because, as Hume says, um, that moral values and vices are not properties of objects or their relation to other objects. They are, ob- they are properties rather of rational minds. Kind of like how sounds and colors and, and heat um, are, you know, are regarded in terms of sensible objects. These are phenomena that require or depend on the mind, as John Locke would remind us. One's thorough knowledge of, say, smartphones tells you nothing about whether you are obligated or not to purchase one. To describe a fact like the smartphone has a calendar does not suddenly take on any obligation. Getting a smartphone may promote your pre-existing values of preferring useful things or maintaining rationality or functionality at the workplace but in terms of making mobile communication more available for yourself, that there's no reason not to own one, but you can never say that you have a binding obligation or a duty to own one solely based on reason. Why should I have an obligation, really, to be rational anyway? It would only be an obligation or duty to own one if, for example, your boss required you to have one. You need a personal rational, relevant authority in which to make sense of having obligations and duties regarding certain values in which to make them binding by holding you accountable. This is key because if we are moral realists, it rules out almost every uh, proceduralist ethical theory out there on the market. Only authority-based views like social contract theories or divine natural law views and divine command ethics remain in which to make people accountable. Though I will take divine natural law views to be, I'll just subsume those under divine command ethics since it's only different in medium and not really in content. Maybe one's more specific than the other, but I don't think that's a relevant uh, distinction. So the question is, which of the two, then, of of these competing theories um... should we choose well social contract theories are contingent on desires for self-preservation self-interest and such and an arbitrary willingness of the people to participate as thomas Hobbes originally recognized we enter into a social contract reluctantly in order to protect what really matters our individual self-interests it is not designed as an ultimate or objective determiner of ethical norms, but merely assumes them in its program. In short, uh, you do what you want to do, not only because you are enforcing the maximization of self-interest, or that you are, in this sense, only because you are enforcing the maximization of self-interest. There is no objective foundation or anchor that such contractual commands are traceable to. The authority is just something that you choose to obey or not. So it ultimately collapses into self-interest. They just terminate, really, with each individual. the contract just gets in the way of our self-interest, perhaps flouting it in favor of injustice actually might become our duty. Duties lose any ultimate binding significance in this interpretation. Thus, as the ethicist Russ Schaefer-Landau points out, on social contractarianism, quote, it is very hard to know whether it is always rational to do our duty. The obligations to promote justice and the prohibition from enacting slavery collapse into personal judgments about whether such commands are conducive or counterproductive to my own needs and desires thereby making the commands themselves arbitrary. So what about the remaining option, divine command ethics? According to the late atheist philosopher of ethics, James Rachels, divine command ethics, quote, solves the old problem about the objectivity of ethics because uh, it is not merely a matter of personal feeling or social custom. And as he goes on to say, it does hold one accountable, which is to say that it has the requisite personal, rational, relevant authority that Hume seems to imply is necessary, that is traceable to an objective foundation. This results in our moral duties being binding because they would be grounded in the obligations and prohibitions given in the commands of God, whose necessary, incorrigible nature grounds the objective values that shape those commands. I submit that the existence of something like a superlative God, in this case, which is entailed by divine command ethics, makes more probable the existence of objective moral obligations and duties in virtue of being that authority. By contrast, atheism would lack any such foundation. Either it cannot account for making sense of obligations and duties, as such, or it cannot trace those obligations and prohibitions and duties to any objective foundation. Or our knowledge of objective moral duties, quite frankly, just must be mistaken. But if, as I think most of us acknowledge, there are objective moral duties that are binding on us, apart from self and circumstance, and these are only meaningful given a relevant but personal rational authority, then a maximally good God probably exists as a unifying explanation for all of these features. So let me just conclude with that for now, and just note that, again, I'm thrilled to be able to be here because I think that such a subject matter, this isn't just academic exercise. I think that this is something that... um, really matters because uh, deciding what ultimately is the meaning of our existence, our own lives, is either determined by ourselves or something outside of ourselves. And I'm concerned that if it turns out that atheism is true, uh, as Jean-Paul Sartre and others had noted, we really are deriving meaning just out of our own creation. And I'm not sure how to distinguish that from self-delusion. So it seems to me that if, God does exist, then, as Julian Baggini and other atheist philosophers acknowledge, we do have a sort of transcendent, objective foundation and a satisfactory anchor in which to ground the meaning of life. So I think that uh, given this particular argument, I believe we can be reasonably assured that God does exist. Okay, and uh, just for those
1: listening, uh, the chat room is open uh, if there's anybody that's wanting to come in, and I think there's a few theists in there so if you guys want to discuss uh, what's going on, feel feel free to do that as well. So the chat room uh, is open. So, Daniel, I'll, uh, I'll go ahead and kind of just turn it over to you and let you guys just kind of have a dialogue at this point. Great. Sounds good.
3: Um, I'd actually like to lead off uh, with a bit of terminology myself. Um The fact uh, is that the terms atheism and agnosticism are both very old. And as such, they're not necessarily the current usage. Uh, dictionary definitions, of course, test the most common usage, but they're not authorities on what words mean in context. Uh, the atheist community these days most uh, overwhelmingly identify, or rather self-identify, as agnostic atheists. Um, and I know Mr. Guthrie considers that not to be a real atheist. Um, personally, I think that's a little bit like saying that no true Scotsman has sugar on his porridge. Um, There are two sides of the coin. There's theism, which is a belief in God, and there is the lack of theism, atheism, which holds no belief in God. It isn't necessary for me or any atheist to be able to prove beyond a doubt uh, that there is no God in order to not believe in it, in order to find the idea silly. I can't prove as an objective certainty that there is no Bigfoot lurking somewhere in the woods. That doesn't mean that until I search every square inch of woods and verify Bigfoot isn't there, that I can safely say, I don't believe in it, I'm an a Bigfootist, and I have no use for the hypothesis. Um, I understand if Mr. Guthrie would rather contend that my terminology is inaccurate, but I maintain that it is not only accurate, but descriptive and utilitarian. An agnostic atheist has no belief in God, but doesn't claim as an epistemological certainty that there is none. A Gnostic or a hard atheist does claim such a thing as a certainty, and yes, the burden of proof would be on them just as it is on the positive claimant, and I'll get to that a little bit more in my hour, I think, Um, but I'd like to touch a little bit on the idea of divine command authority or social contract and how that all relates to morality, Um, and it seems, and you can certainly correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Mr. Guthrie, but that your uh, position is... Uh, predicated on a presupposition that there is something that is objective about morality and that we can have social systems are uh, objective and stand the test of time and that aren't based on individual preferences. Um, I would challenge that premise itself. Uh, It seems like you're presupposing an objective morality in order to prove God creating an objective morality. Um, We know, even with the same religion varying by multiple regions, to say nothing of the same religion varying by sects or by time periods, that the actions and commands of God are either deliberately uh, interpreted one way or another or sometimes changed, sometimes ignored. We've had Christian societies who believed in the importance of feeding the poor and healing the sick. We've had Christian societies who burned Jews at the stake for being uh, non-Christians. The idea that there is necessarily and inherently objective morality has to be proven before we use it to support anything else. And while the fact that there may not be an objective morality, may be disturbing, may be frightening, may induce violence. That doesn't make it false. That simply points out potential negative consequences were it true. I believe that's uh, most of my points on here. I don't disagree necessarily um, that There is a huge amount of subjective and personal interest in most morality. Simply disagree that we know whether or not there's an objective morality, whether religion could claim to speak to it, even if there was, and whether or not the subjective view of greater power being would make that morality objective.
1: All right, Shandon.
2: Okay. So. Remember that when I laid out my case, I actually had expressed, in a sense, dual components that are necessary for having uh, duties and obligations. And I said, first of all, that you have to have some kind of personal, rational, relevant authority that's going to make sense of there being such a thing as binding moral duties and prohibitions. Notice I didn't use the word objective here. I didn't impose the concept of objective moral Values as such—that um, is, in a sense, a component. But right now, I'm discussing the meaningfulness of having such a thing as an obligation. So, in defense of that, well, I'll get to that in just a moment. Let me mention the other leg of this, which is to say that the uh, authority, then, in this sense, must be traceable to that foundation. And I think this is where it's relevant. So. The, the, what this all boils down to, and i didn 't hear any disagreement about the in order to have morality, one must have these obliga- must have these factors i didn 't hear that contested. what I heard was a de facto contesting of there being such a thing as an objective morality that it 's uh, variegated in some way that the Christian church historically has been perhaps inept in being consistent in dishing out its dishing out the commands of God and such in various societal ways. That might be true, but I want to caution here. I think that this overstating the case that because there is disagreement or that values have been dispensed or disseminated, perhaps in an inconsistent way, that somehow this constitutes a refutation. Um, according, to, according to the same atheist philosopher I mentioned earlier, James Rachel's, uh, he, he believes that we generally tend to overstate the disagreement and that cultures ultimately, even within the Christian culture, they may disagree over do we, do we kill these people or not and that kind of thing. They all agree that life has value or that theft is wrong or that adultery is wrong and uh, slandering God's name is wrong and such. They just disagree not over values then, but over facts. It would be like saying, well, why is it that some Hindus eat cows and other Hindus don't? Well, they must have a value difference. No, no, it's not a value difference. It's just that perhaps one sect thinks that the cow is grandma and reincarnated. And so their consistent value of sanctifying living persons, whether deceased or or, or not, remains and holds true. The values don't change. It's the interpretation or the meeting out of those values that are variegated. So if we're asking the question, do we know of any objective values? um, I like what Renford Bambro says. He, He says, quote, my proof that we have moral knowledge consists essentially in saying Well, we know that this child who is about to undergo what would otherwise be painful surgery should be given an anesthetic before the operation. Therefore, we know at least one moral proposition to be true. No proposition, he goes on to say, that could plausibly be alleged as a reason in favor of doubting the truth of the proposition that the child should be given an anesthetic can possibly be more certainly true than that proposition itself. And I think I would take the same line of thought in terms of moral realism. Are there any obligations and duties? I far more think that this is, in fact, obvious to us. If we we say something like you shouldn't kill or rape children or torture infants for fun, I don't think that that just collapses into mere convention, situation, or personal self-interest, like social contractarianism ultimately would of certain varieties. You see, those things I think we, we feel compelled that this is, even if society thought otherwise, if uh, the United States or, or the Western thinking evolved completely differently and we had a different set of beliefs, it would still be wrong, I think, to do these kinds of things. And that, to me, means that the best explanation is that moral realism is true, that values do come or I should say, the right and the wrong do come across as obligations, and there's no way to make sense of that unless you have the relevant personal rational authority. Finally, just the minor point about atheism, I want to be clear. I, I really don't disagree with the, with the bottom line here, and that is we're just not going to vie for certainty this evening. I think that is pretty much true. But I want to be clear about the etymology of, of atheism or atheos, it is true that conventional atheism, since uh, the presumption of atheism produced by um, Anthony Flew and followed by others, sought to epistemologize the term so that atheism sort of became, uh, evolved into, it's a lack of belief in God. But that's not how prefixes work in Greek. When you have something like Theos," that is the lack of God, it's not, it's not lacking the property of a belief. It's lacking a metaphysical property. It's like when you say, this, these two signals are asynchronous. It's not a lack of belief that they're in sync. It's a lack of synchronicity in the signals themselves. So when one uses atheos, historically, they mean, they should mean, that the universe lacks a God. So am I worried about the, the change of terminology? No, I don't care. Uh, society, uh, the United States is obviously uh, augmenting and, and altering its definition of things like marriage and legal substances. So I understand an evolving progressive society in which terms may come to mean different things. My concern is, is when we start using fancy language like agnostic atheist, I'm almost not sure what that means anymore. Why couldn't I call myself an agnostic theist? So it gives the illusion I've got nothing to defend. So I only say that as I'm concerned, but I don't disagree with the bottom line. Okay. Um,
3: I'd like to start out and say I absolutely agree. You could be an agnostic theist. If you believed in a God, but you didn't believe you had perfect certainty, that would make you an agnostic theist. If you lacked belief in a God and you didn't claim perfect certainty, likewise, that would make you an agnostic. And for what it's worth, I know the etymology has changed, um, but defining modern words by their etymological roots has drawbacks. Um, I doubt you and I would reach a point of agreement. I'll simply point out that that is how millions of atheists self-identify and how we describe ourselves. And I believe it has utility for that reason. Um, Anyways, like I said, I'm sure we won't reach agreement on that point. Um, I did want to touch on a few things you mentioned, however. one of them was that these are matters of fact and not value. Um, I believe the example you gave was that religious people may disagree on who specifically should be killed, but they will agree that murder is wrong. But with those two, if we have a subjective basis of killings and an objective, absolute uh, principle that murder is wrong – Those two are now in contradiction. Both can't be true. Either murder is always wrong, or you get to pick and choose who you can kill, and therefore anyone who you don't choose to kill and is killed, well, then that's murder. That's subjectivism on the face of it. Um, There's also the fact, I think, I'm not sure we've really gotten past the claim, but I don't see there being any sort of absolute or objective or whatever term we should use for duties and obligations. Duties and obligations, at least all of them that I've seen in my life, are either imposed or are attempted to be imposed by external forces or by internal willpower, and beyond that there is no force that can offer compulsion beyond physical compulsion. Um, I question the idea that there are any such duties and obligations other than the ones that we choose to accept and others choose to impose on us. Uh, Placing them as some sort of metaphysical certainty seems to place the cart before the horse. We need to have these ideas and see whether or not we agree with them before we can accept that it's even possible to have such commandments rather than someone simply trying to tell you what to do. Uh, We accept a difference between our boss Giving us orders and some random person On the street until we've accepted That there is such a boss That can give such commandments It's still simply begging the question um, It also Provides uh, Problems when we get to Being able to solve um, Well you know how would, how would our world Work what do we need how can we Have this feeling that something's Wrong without some sort of Absolute uh, morality Or the uh, relevant, um, uh, and so on, rational authority. Um, but we would still have the ability to, to personally choose whether or not something was right or wrong by simple aesthetics. If I find it more aesthetic that there isn't suffering going on, I'll be able to rationalize a reason why, oh, that's moral. If I find it to be aesthetic that uh, rich people are able to earn all they want, well, I can find a way for that to be moral too. As long as I have control of my axioms and my givens, I can choose anything that I want and support it as long as I'm in control of it. That doesn't prove, however, that such a thing exists in the first place. We could talk all day about the coloration of unicorns, but that might not mean anything more than us talking about the nature of morality. We have to first prove that morality is anything other than social conventions. is has any real existence beyond the statistical probability of what people will think or feel and prove that there really is something behind it. Until we do that, all you're doing is positing an absolute being, not actually giving evidence that it exists.
1: So let's do this because I know there's, uh, there's a lot of points on the table. Shandon, take a point that you kind of want to go with and let's have a conversation between you guys on that particular point so nothing's getting lost.
2: Well, uh, yeah, well, there's a couple of things that I think um, do need correction. I'm willing to suspend judgment about this notion of being an agnostic atheist and the terminology therein, but uh, I'm concerned that by implication that we must therefore, and it seems to me the position that, Daniel, that you're proposing is, quite frankly, um, there are no moral values outside of a subjectivist system. And as you said, we determine a sort of aesthetic matrix in which we, make, we do our decision-making ethically. And that, to me, just sounds like it's arbitrary. And, and I think that that just sort of smacks, in, it smacks against the notion of our intuitions about the sorts of specific uh, aspects or examples of, of moral obligations and duties, because then – When we say something like, you have a duty, like Bambro says, you have a duty to give a child an anesthetic before performing surgery on him, I don't think that's because the doctor says, I think that's in line with my aesthetic. And so I just simply am going to will this. It makes it arbitrary, and I don't think that that's the right interpretation of moral realism. And we can deny it which is fine, but now the, here's the expense or the cost of atheism. In effect, if atheism is true, your moral judgments collapse into desires. That's it. It's just what you want to do, unfortunately, and that's just life. And I think that that point concerns me.
3: Well, I, I definitely hear your point. I think, however, uh, your, your argument in basis is based on the fallacy of appeal to consequences. Whether or not a system without God leads to productive or destructive morality is irrelevant to whether or not the underlying case of the nature of morality is true or not. If it's good or bad, that doesn't affect the truth value. Um, Now, I I would offer one quick caveat. There's nothing inherent in atheism itself that says there are no moral values. Um, Sam Harris has argued that there are at quite great lengths, I happen to disagree with him, but as I stated earlier, atheism is the lack of belief in a god. You can have a great number of other philosophical beliefs attached to it, but it doesn't necessitate uh, my belief, my specific belief, that morality is inherently illusory uh, to a large extent. Um, There's also a problem with trusting our intuition of morality. Were you born an Aztec, your intuition would not tell you that murder was wrong. Uh, your intuition would tell you that murder was necessary in order to keep the sun going. Um, intuition alone is only proof of an inborn innate tendency to believe something. We can intuit something and be completely wrong. Intuition isn't proof. It's a gut feeling. And it may be right, but alone it isn't probative. Um, moreover, again, the concept of duty, without it, yes, it can break down a desire, but I would contend desire for Status or health or wealth or what have you, is not terribly different from a desire for righteousness in God's eyes. We're both essentially motivated by something that personally motivates us, whether it's glorying God and God's creation or enhancing humanity and the human spirit and the human mind. We're driven by something that we feel, and then we try to Justify or rationalize it. Um, they've done brain research actually, which shows that the impulse for something tends to predate or precede, rather, our. Uh, consciousness of it and our will to actually do it. Um, Much of what we do is rationalization. We use post-processing. We'll see things or feel things or hear them and the brain uses a a process rather known as pragnos which is the simplest interpretations are the ones that are kept. We're very good at discarding alternative evidence as humans and we're very good at rationalizing things the way we want and choosing only the facts we'd like to see. The fact that this has negative consequences, potentially, is not a reason why it would be untrue. It may be a reason why it might be damaging, but damaging does not equal untruth.
2: Okay, now my, con- my new concern here now is that uh, I think you have a fundamental misunderstanding of probability and how this works. What you're arguing, in essence, could be used as a critique of any claim of knowledge. About anything, whether I'm even living. Uh, as long as I can doubt it, how do I know I'm not the product of my geographical, chronological circumstances? So that's my first concern. My second concern is: is you're, you invoke the fallacy of consequences. No, I used a reductio, uh, trying to show that if atheism were true, you have these unacceptable consequences, and that's a perfectly legitimate way to critique a thesis. And thirdly, um, I have to say that you can't just weigh uh, – it is true that people tend to want to reinforce biases and prejudices and beliefs that they have. That's no surprise. I mean, come on, we're living in the United States. We've got two warring political parties, and all we have to do is watch TV, watch the presidential State of the Union address, and the respondents, and see exactly what's happening. People seeking their own community to reinforce their beliefs. But then that raises the burden of what is the counter evidence? If, in fact, we should be skeptical, so much so that we should override what Renfrew Bambro says is um, what what seems intuitively obvious. If you don't like that, you've got to have a counter argument or a counter intuition that should override that. And quite frankly, saying, well, that's because moral values collapse just into desire, is quite frankly very counterintuitive to me, and I would venture to say most persons. Okay. um, But again, because something is counterintuitive doesn't make it false. And that's
3: something I'm going to talk a lot more about in uh, my half of the show. Uh, But there are a great many things that we deal with every day uh, where our intuition isn't just sort of wrong or sort of off. It's wildly off. Um, and also, I, I do understand the probability, whether we're talking uh, Bayesian analysis or what have you. Um, the problem is that the probabilistic nature of something has to be based on firm givens. Um, when we're dealing with ideas like morality or justice, they're ideas, they're not things. Uh, they're not something that we're able to get at and actually measure. They're all, they exist in the minds of people who discuss them. Uh, probability there doesn't become enough to say whether or not uh, those ideas are true because we don't have anything to test. There's no objective measure of whether killing person A or person B is right. Those come down to value judgments. But whether or not my car has gasoline in it, whether or not something exists as much as anything else in this reality or what have you, those are things we can test for. Those are things we can falsify. Um, Nor do I necessarily have to provide a competing paradigm to divine command, simply showing that it varies, that there isn't one unified morality that any group or tribe or religion has ever demonstrated in all of human history is necessary and required to show that there isn't that continuation. And I do disagree that it's just based on facts. Valued themselves do change based on the area, based on who's saying it. In, um, there is a famous example, I believe it was maybe in the 1400s, where a French army sacked a city, and their commander said, kill them all, God will know his own. And the streets ran ankle deep with blood. Obviously, that wasn't the belief that, oh, you know, murder is wrong necessarily, just wrong if you kill the wrong people. Uh, There is a criterion of falsifiability. Um, If you could show an unchanging system of morality uh, that was relevant for all times, that never change, which uh, the uh, exemplars of that morality had uh, perfect success at it, and they showed that it was a workable system, then we might be getting close to falsifiability. We'd need to discuss the nature of such uh, morality. We'd need to discuss what it actually entailed. But if you could show something that was uh, not just um, stable in a variety of interpretations, but relevant in all contexts and unchanging, that might do it.
2: Yeah, this is the same sorts of discussions that have been had in epistemology and the, and again you're raising concerns that apply to all walks of life not just morality. This has a very devastating effect on knowledge what you're saying. This is not an indictment on morality. Now this is an all out war on philosophy. The problem here is when you say things like um uh that you have to uh that that this must be measured or, or testable and that sort of thing. One wonders are you now trying to suggest that if this is not, in a sense, a scientific postulation, we're barking up the wrong tree? And You mentioned things like from givens. Are you saying there must be axioms that are uh, unquestionable? i got news for you. Lewis Poyman says, in philosophy, there are no uncontested questions. So you see, philosophy as a discipline utterly ev- vanishes. So if, if that's what I, if that's the purchase price, in order to accommodate a uh, healthy skepticism about morality, I just sooner distance myself from it. But I also want to say something about probability, that is actually more accurate. One of the groomers of uh, probability theory, you mentioned Bayesians, uh, no less a Bayesian than Richard Swinburne, points out, basically about four factors. He says that a hypothesis that leads us to expect with accuracy many and varied events which we observe and uh, we do not observe any events whose non-occurrence it leads us to expect secondly what is proposed is simple thirdly that it fits well with our background knowledge and fourthly we do not otherwise expect to find these events and again you know we're, we're talking about rivals and such So the point here is that, yes, you don't need an alternative to divine command ethics. That's fine. I'm not asking for that. I'm asking for us to make sense of moral realism if it's true. And I'm giving a probability, based on intuition, that it's more likely true. Something along the lines of G.E. Moore. You know, he's famed to have... They asked him, do you believe in the external world? And he says, I've got two reasons. And he holds up his left hand and he holds up his right hand. There, you stand refuted. And the wisdom there is that you take what's obvious in the sense. Yes, counterintuitive propositions can be true, but you have to have arguments for that. You can't just say that and collapse into skepticism and say, because you haven't met this whatever axiomatic or measurement program I have in mind, therefore you ought not to believe in uh, such things as duties and obligations. Um,
3: well, uh, again, I don't, I don't quite dis- agree, rather, with a bunch of your premises. Um, I think in, in a lot of ways you're right that a proper understanding of epistemology and the world around us makes knowledge a relative affair. Um, the more and more we see about the way the world works, the more uh, it seems like we have to go back to Socrates' statement that the only thing we truly know is that we know nothing. Uh, The more we learn, the more we see, the more it seems that knowledge is always an approximation. Um, Moreover, if we were to lose philosophy if my statements were true, Again, if that's one of the consequences, that doesn't make it true or false. That would be the argument from consequence, uh, which is a fallacy. We can't argue, well, these are the consequences, therefore, it's not true. These are the consequences, therefore, we want it or don't want it, that's fine. Uh, but not the truth value. And further, as I can't uh, really let this go. Intuition proves nothing. Um, if your intuition is that your wife is cheating on you, that doesn't mean you have proof of it. That means that's your gut feeling. And this doesn't change if we're talking about morality or ontology or anything else. Intuition just means that's your guess. And using your guess to prove your guess circular reasoning. Further, I'm not stating as an absolute position that the only things that exist are those that we can measure or quantify. I am stating that for anything to have an objective impact on the world around us, it must change things. Changing things is something we can measure. This is not philosophical naturalism. It's simple methodological naturalism. If we can't observe and test something, we're based only on opinions. And then it does get back to that fact that, again, the Aztecs had a very different intuition on what morality is than a modern American or a modern Christian or anyone else for that matter. Uh, We don't need unquestionable axioms. I I agree. Doubt is the root of a lot of humanity's strength. The point isn't that I want the axioms to be unquestionable. The point is... I want us to be able to have a coherent system that allows predictive power and explanatory power. And I don't feel we're able to do that without relying on objective measurements, which require a uh, methodological naturalism and which require essentially an empirical situation. Um, I'd also like to point out before, and I know, uh, Mr. Sutter, you probably have a few objections, but epistema, oh, pardon me, um, we don't need to separate Um, them into separate uh, camps. We don't need to say that empiricism and rationalism can't combine, they can. My contention, and I'll get to it later, is that pure reason isn't enough to determine our reality, neither is pure observation, Um, and that we have to combine them both with falsifiability. If philosophy is reduced to mere word games because of this, so be it. I'm arguing truth. I'm not particularly
2: concerned with whether or not people like the consequences. Okay. I, I, let me say something about this consequences. That I, if I'm reading you right, I, th- I think this is merging with your larger program to say that um, objectivity, which is still sort of, I'm, I'm hearing it undefined on your part, but it seems to me, if I understand you right, it's a, it's a system that will change things Consistently and have predictive power, and if if that's the case, I'm not sure how that excludes something like uh, divine command ethics. Pointing to the fact that some people disagree with the program, uh, again, I've I ha, I hadn't I didn't hear a refutation of what I noted about Rachel's, who says that these this is overplayed. This card is overplayed. This is why ethical relativism doesn't grab a hold of the intelligentsia anymore because the notion of cultural differences is a card that's just overplayed. There are fundamental points of agreement. Can divine command ethics make predictions? Yes. It accords quite well with the fact that you would have a moral conscience with the fact that you do have a sense of obligations and duties. Could those intuitions and such be wrong? Of course. But all of the criticisms you've raised tonight, as you seem to subtly admit, um, it might actually jeopardize the field of epistemology. So be it. Uh, Yes, doubt is a virtue. Yes, it's a virtue to some degree. But you can't just, by implication, not by this fallacy of consequences, by, by reductio, and this is a sound principle in philosophy, I can't emphasize this enough in critical thinking, that you can use the... Uh, result in consequences if there are reasonable consequences from a system or a program or an enterprise t- you can use that against the policy itself this is what happens in ethics all the time environmental ethics you shouldn't do this because the consequences are you'll poison the groundwater and if you do that people will die now do they should the people or the uh, the the, the, the uh, uh, business itself turn around and say well that's just a fallacy If the consequences here I need not change my behavior and there are other intuitions, I don't know what they are, but they're out there. I'm concerned that a lot of what I'm hearing, you're biting off more than you can chew here. This is, this is a meta-discussion that's going beyond morality. And I'm just going to reiterate that if you have a sense that you have an obligation to enact justice and that it's not just a desire, unless you think you are living in in, in, uh, amongst the Aztecs 2,000 years ago then I need a good argument which is what they had the reason why knowledge has evolved in the sense of what has been dubbed or given the honorary title fact is because we've had new evidence come in and that is countervailing evidence against other Bayesian or probability factors
3: okay thank you
2: um I want to touch just on a few uh,
3: proced- not procedural, factual notes, rather, and then uh, into the meat of your claims. Um, I'd like to point out I did, or at least I would say I refuted uh, your claims about um, how the differences in religions over time are overplayed. Um, I argue that it's not a difference in fact. It is a value. When we talk about who we can and can't kill, you're then arbitrarily defining murder. And I, I will stand by that argument, and I'm sure you disagree. Um, I do. I also don't believe that the idea of divine command shows any change. We can't test for it with the removal of a variable. It's essentially people feel this therefore. Um, and it doesn't tell us a mechanism by that. And it also fails on the criteria of predictive power because you said those intuitions, those sense of moral obligation and conscience, flow from that divine command. But even in humanity, then you don't answer for the question of sociopaths. So either, Morality is there's divine command, but for some reason God doesn't care to command sociopaths or there's something else happening. There are plenty of people who don't have those moral imperatives. Um, I also strongly disagree that I'm in any way uh, jeopardizing epistemology. As I'll get to uh, in my half of the show, I believe my uh, my position is predicated on proper epistemology, and that proper epistemology requires uh, the types of methods that I'm going to elaborate on a bit more and that I've talked about so far. Um, I'd also like to point out that we're not really... You you gave examples of um, someone using the fallacy of appeal to consequences if it was an environmental study or what have you. Well, that's a study on impact. Consequences are relevant. But if we're talking about the existence and nature of ethics well then that's no longer based on consequences but ontology so saying this isn't the real ethics because it's bad is a non sequitur that's why it's the fallacy of appeal to consequences saying we're not talking about their utility we're not talking about whether or not we should follow them the claim that it exists and therefore it entails other consequences and you can argue whether or not it exists and you can argue logical relationships between its existence or non-existence and consequences but the presence or lack of consequences does nothing to speak to the truth value if we're studying the impact of a new parking lot based on what we decide growth versus what have you then yes we can come to a conclusion but this isn't about impact this is about its existence and what it shows and i haven't seen any evidence that it exists beyond intuition while intuition is nice and all it doesn't prove anything
2: Yeah, that's the same argument you can give like i said of, of any sort of epistemological affirmations any in, in, when epistemologists speak about being appeared too greenly and when they see a green tree or something like that or being appeared too treely i can use the exact same argument and demolish that as well that yeah. i can't on the basis of the the, the experience that I'm having, because the experience could be wrong. I can doubt it. You may be intuitive, but intuition proves nothing. And that, to me, I think, goes to the heart of a real problem here in terms of one's epistemology. So I I guess we'll probably have to have a gentleman's disagreement, but to me, if I'm diagnosing this, the problem is beyond the argument. The problem is now one of an epistemological framework that you're working from, so I'll be quite interested to hear how you build that. Sure. I'd be happy to. Um,
3: I do, of course, as I'm sure we're going through more times during this uh, program, I do disagree on uh, the nature of refutation and falsification and testability and the uh, nature of ontology. When we're talking about ideas we're not able to provide an objective metric we're able to see whether consensus agrees with us or not we're able to see how consistency changes but again we're not able to see that everyone's intuition is the same we're not even able to see that everyone has the same intuition if however we're talking about a tree we can take measurements that are invariant for the person I can measure the mass of the tree. I can measure the atomic composition of the tree. I can measure a dozen different things and have any random person measure it and get the same exact result. Now, while it doesn't speak to perfect certainty, it does speak to greater fitness. And that ability is what I rely on. I don't claim perfect certainty. I'm not sure such a thing exists. And I don't believe that the ability to doubt anything is necessarily weakness. I believe that's the strength of proper epistemology. And you're right, we could question whether or not uh, our reality is one great big illusion. Certainly, it's been argued before. But that is not as grounded in what we're doing as being able to interact with things that have a material impact on our life beyond
2: people's ideas. Yeah, see, I'm not sure what you mean by a material impact. It sounds to me like you certainly have an aspiration for any program or system to yield practical results, and believe me, I sympathize. But all that means is, is that dem- divine command ethicists of, of history probably should have been rehabilitated. Why do you, and that goes back to that you also made a category mistake about uh, you said, who we can and can't, who we can and can't kill is a value judgment. No, not at all. That's a factual statement. It's who falls under the purview of whether we will call this murder or not. And that's where the episodes get convoluted. It's this merging of fact and value that I think is, is quite frankly mistaken. Uh, they don't disagree that murder is a bad thing. In fact, the word murder itself probably entails a sense of injustice in killing someone. The question is, who is part of the category to whom that applies? So, uh, I, again, I'm concerned about the epistemological program you might have in mind because from what I'm hearing it sounds like uh, this just doesn't bode and it seems like you acknowledge that to some degree it just doesn't bode well for knowledge in general except that dual or they're, they're variably realizable by multiple parties well if we're all living in the matrix we're going to have the same experiences of measurements too that doesn't prove anything so I could easily play the agnostic about whether there is a green tree out there, and try out the same sort of uh, foundation that you've afforded this evening, and it might very well sound like that I should be disbelieving, therefore, or at least neutralize that there is such a thing as a green tree. And, again, I'm just appealing. Intuition, by the way, is very specific. It's not women's intuition. We're not talking about flights of fancy. We're talking about what G.E. Moore and others refer to as sort of common sense. And overall this fits into the probability of what is the expectation that we should have these intuitions given one theory versus another. And it seems to me that if we do seem to have these intuitions that we have duties and obligations, that comports more so with theism than atheism. And I don't think that's been contested this evening. What I'm hearing is we shouldn't we, – intuitions mean nothing – and, uh, and, and I could be wrong and, and that sort of thing. And I'm just going to appeal then to sort of common sense basis that, that uh, if you don't want to check out philosophy altogether, then it seems to me we should be theists. Well,
3: with, with all due respect, I think there, there are a few problems with that. First of all, the function in general of common sense is to be jolted into uncommon sense. We have a lot of habitual perceptions, and the more we look at the world, the more we find out that most of them have been false. And further, yes, I, I certainly admit the possibility that we all remain in the matrix, and we could all Im- measure an imaginary tree and get the same results. But even in that case, it would have the same consistency as the rest of our reality. It would be as real as anything else. It doesn't need an absolute value as long as it is relatively as real as other things. I also still have to disagree that there is any fine line between factual claims and value claims. If I hold as a value that stealing is, stealing from people is wrong, and then I say, but all the humans around me don't qualify as people, I don't actually hold the value that stealing is wrong. If I'm able to redefine my categories a whim or by society or by region or by age we're claiming there's some sort of value but you know today it's right to kill people and tomorrow well you can't kill any people because none of them are unjust or well you can kill everyone because they're unjust that isn't value that's a sliding scale um and again we have i, I can provide a, a perfectly satisfactory alternate explanation of how we came to, in general, and remember sociopaths do not have this innate moral sense, but how as a species we came to have it. We came up as pack animals. If we weren't roughly altruistic while being roughly self-interested, we would have a much lower fitness as a species. If we didn't have group cohesiveness, we wouldn't be able to gather in social bands to create uh, artifacts and technology and writings to care for young effectively. By working to together to a relative degree, not an absolute degree, but to a relative degree to achieve relative fitness, we have progressed this far. It doesn't require any transcendent explanation
2: for a relative best fit species.
0: All right, Very good. Uh, I'm going to uh, let you keep
2: that last word. Uh, I hear Devin's getting ready to chime in. I see we're at the top of the hour. So, Yeah, let's, uh, what well, I want to do is I'll
1: let you guys, uh, we're going to take a two-minute break real quick. And I'll let you guys get a drink or something I know you've uh, been talking And, and been, been <laughs> intense for the last uh, hour So we'll take a two minute break We'll come back Daniel, you'll have ten minutes uh, And then we will uh, continue with the Crossfire Dialogue So we'll so okay. go ahead and uh, take a break And we will be right back
4: But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. The word justified means that you and I stand before God acceptable, spotless, pure, and without sin. That God looks at us and says, there is no sin in that man. There is no sin in that woman. That he looks at us and we are now just in his sight. So all the blasphemy that we've done by choosing stuff over God, all the blasphemy that we've lived in by saying my way is better than God, all the blatant sin of saying creation is better than God is removed and God sees us as just. Much more than having now been justified by God is blood. This is great news. Nothing about your effort in that test at all. Nothing about your might, your religious stamina, your morality, your cleaning yourself up. You have been justified by an act of God. Bottom line, you have not earned right standing in front of God by your effort or your cleaning up of your life. We have been made pure, standing blameless in front of God, not because of any kind of religious or moral pursuit, but because Christ died. And in His death, He absorbed all of God's wrath for you and I. And that's why the Bible says that for the children of God, we are not appointed to suffer wrath. Because the wrath bestowed upon you and I was absorbed by Christ.
1: Alright, welcome back to Theology Matters with Palooze And we are having an informal uh, Debate slash discussion With uh, Shandon Guthrie And Daniel uh, Shelot, I think is his last name, I'll let him correct me on that um, Real quickly Before we turn it over to him uh, If you have not liked our page On Facebook uh, please do that. We have a lot of our podcasts and uh, a lot of our older shows there. Dot com slash Theology Matters with the dot Facebook.com slash Theology Matters with the We've had uh, other debates. We've had Matt Dillahunty from the uh, Atheist Experience come on and did a debate with uh, a good friend of mine, John Ferrer, from Southern Evangelical Seminary. And uh, you know, we plan to have more debates and uh, other stuff in the future. So check that out. All right, uh, gentlemen, you guys, uh, you guys, hear me okay?
2: Yes, sir. Yes, I can hear you.
1: All right, Andy, I keep murdering your last name. I apologize about that. What, what is it again?
3: No problem. No one ever gets it right. It's Shalit. Um, it's it's Hebrew, so most people uh, have trouble getting it.
1: Ah, okay. Well, all right, uh, we'll go ahead and turn it over to you. I know you said you wanted to take 10 minutes or so, and then uh, let's, we'll just continue with the crossfire, so I'll turn it over to you.
3: Perfect, thank you very much, sir. Okay, so in my opinion, the main question, and the really important question, is if the God particle can be tested for, why can't God? My case is not based on the absolute denial of any claimed God or goddess or the denial of any claimed gods or goddesses, or the denial of any claimed disembodied or amorphous deistic or pantheistic concepts. Atheism is simply a lack of belief in religious claims. It does not require that one conclusively disprove religious claims, else atheism would be, by necessity, non-existent, as there are more religions and sects and more claimed deities than could possibly be researched in any single human lifetime. The burden that many theists attempt to place on atheists evinces a standard which is completely inapplicable in real life, in which virtually no sane human being follows. If your car's engine is making a noise and you're not sure why, it's delusional to claim that we cannot rule out possibilities until we've investigated whether or not gremlins exist and are messing with your engine, or whether or not voodoo magic is real and the Loa are messing with your engine, or
4: we simply do
3: not demand that people disprove all competing claims. Instead, we hold to the null hypothesis and proper epistemology, which demands that the default assumption is the negation of any claim unless and until the null hypothesis is falsified. We are not required to reject claim gods only upon disproving them. By assigning an answer of God did it to any or every unknown, we simply equate God with our ignorance. And while that's not a helpful formation, the real issue is that, it's an inter- that, me, is that an intercessionary god would need to leave evidence of interaction with the universe and we could test for that now while a trickster god might hide such evidence in doing so it would create a universe whose workings would be indistinguishable from a universe that existed
0: without a god
3: the same is true for any non-personal deistic god and you cannot get from deism to theism since one describes a personal god and the other does not. There's simply too much daylight between the two. Nor do any God claims that I've heard, at least, offer any real predictive or explanatory power. Saying something we don't understand in it is the cessation of investigation, not the beginning. If any claims of a God or gods are to be taken seriously, they must be testable and repeatable and have explicit falsification criteria. I base my case on three contentions, grounded in physical reality and proper epistemology. They are as follows. Contention one, the fact that uncertainty is king. Reality itself is probabilistic, and that makes the null hypothesis mandatory since perfect knowledge becomes impossible. Nor is pure reason the answer. Logic logic is subject to Godel's incompleteness. Both axioms and givens can be and often are falsified by empirical investigation. Many of our linguistic and logical concepts have been proving proven meaningless, things like nothing, identity, non-contradiction, locality, and so on. Faced with the limits on certainty, the burden of proof is therefore upon any claimant. The null hypothesis has to be falsified in order to accept any claim as provisionally true. And the null is always the negation of the claim. And even when the dominant view is falsified, that still does not mean that our options are binary. You cannot use the fallacy of bifurcation to substitute an unproven claim just because the standing model is falsified when Newton's formula for universal gravitation was falsified, we did not just accept the next competing model. Now, while this does mean that, obstan- well, pardon me, while this does not mean that unsubstantiated claims are false, the default assumption must be that they are until proven otherwise. Contention two, doubt is our muse. Models must include criteria for falsification, otherwise it becomes impossible to refine them, let alone discover if they are somewhat or completely wrong. Utility, in terms of objective reality, will then serve as our only viable metric for testing the relative fitness of a claim. And while we don't have the ability to achieve perfect knowledge, we do have the ability to evaluate the fitness of various claims by their outputs. The ability to reliably and repeatedly induce changes in reality in conformity with will is evidence of the relative fitness of a claim. Since science has gotten us from the dark ages to the Internet age, it appears to be our best bet. We've prayed precisely zero space shuttles into orbit. Now, doubt does lead us to question, to reevaluate, to look further than what appears to be self evident It's doubt that's propelled our species from hunter-gatherers to the information age. Gauges, on the other hand, are still known as the age of faith. We know that human understanding, intuition, and even our instinctual modes of perception are all inadequate for analyzing the universe around us. Faced with life in a world which we may never be able to comprehend on any real level, Complete certainty about deep reality is not only unwarranted, but it can actively hinder progress. If we had held to Einstein's infamous statement that God does not play dice, we would not have many of the modern technologies that make our world work. Certainty breeds stagnation. Doubt brings progress. Contention three. Proper epistemology requires us to find fingerprints and demand parsimony. An infinite number of logically consistent models may be created to explain virtually any phenomena, but that does not mean that any are correct, let alone one specific claim amongst them is correct. Further, logical consistence applies to multiples of non-existent entities. Within its own logical framework, the magic creatures in World of Warcraft are perfectly consistent. They're also completely imaginary. That something is logically possible doesn't mean that it's ontologically possible. Parsimony must be maintained, and the endless sea of alternate possibilities must be ignored unless and until they're substantiated. And extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Logical coherence is far from enough. Simple fact that logical proofs can be valid and can appear sound until we gain empirical knowledge that falsifies them, well, that mandates that we keep our default as a rejection of any and all claims that cannot be confirmed to a reasonable degree through the use of evidence. Due to the nature of uncertainty and the fertility of doubt, we require a method that can winnow possible explanations while still displaying the highest degree of relative fitness possible. I argue that the scientific method does just that. Now, when I'm talking about extraordinary evidence or extraordinary claims, I think we would all agree that a totally new force to physics would be extraordinary, if out of the ordinary. That is an extraordinary claim. And we also have a very firm metric what extraordinary evidence means. The standard in physics for a new discovery is five sigma. That's five standard deviations away from the mean. That is an event which has only a one in 3.5 million chance of being produced by random background conditions. The hypothesis is still anything that's observed is the result of random action. We do not discard it. And five sigma is standard that the Higgs boson, the so-called God particle, was held to. If any force outside of our universe interacted with our reality, it too would be observable and testable unless we're back to the idea of a trickster god hiding its tracks, or a god that didn't intervene in the universe. But since we're talking about a personal god, that can't be relevant. But in either case, the outcome would be functionally identical to a universe without any god or gods. A god with no evidence or a God with no interaction leaves a universe with no trace of God. In short, the null hypothesis, parsimony, privilege, default, provisional negation above unverified assertion. Now, while an unfalsified null hypothesis does not prove that the claim is false, as long as the null stands unfalsified, provisional negation
1: stands. All right, All right. Uh, Shandon, go, go ahead. I'll let you, turn it over to you and let you guys uh, kind of dialogue.
2: All right, there's a lot of um, deep-seated technical information there, and I just think that in many respects we might lose our audience. I'm going to do my best to sort of deprogram my response here. I don't want to get overly uh, deeply entrenched in, in uh, uh, probability theory and such that
0: we lose
2: sight of what we're ultimately trying to do here. I think that Daniel's project is... Shelley, right? Did I get that right? Yes, um, I believe that Daniel's project here, which is kind of now, I feel, in a sense, misled. Uh, I was told to think that we can have a gentleman's disagreement about atheism. Now it seems like his case for atheism is... He has staked his camp now that atheism is a null hypothesis. It is the absence of belief. And therefore, if you suspend judgment about something, that is the default position, that's what atheism is, and therefore we should, uh, through the reasoning process he's provided, we should therefore affirm atheism. So I think that I've got to call him on that and explain that uh, a sort of what he calls a provisional negation is indistinguishable from a suspension of belief. And those two are, and denying that something is the case and suspending belief are completely distinct. Um, are there mushrooms growing in Afghanistan? I don't know, but that doesn't mean, therefore, they're not. Uh, so I can't affirm that kind of conclusion on the basis that I must suspend belief about something. So, um, so uh, that, that's my word about the suspension of belief. Um, now he says something about the, the hypothesis of God, and here I think hopefully we'll make some traction here because I'm getting the am getting the the uh, the feeling or the sense here that uh, we must think of God scientifically, and this is this is essential uh, for the case that's been made. Because then he goes in to use the scientific jargon about falsifiability and such. And I'm simply going to say that that's not the standard by which the epistemologists or philosophers in general work by. We don't need to scientize uh, metaphysical truths. Like I said before, and all of the things that he said today, is that, in effect, the null hypothesis would apply to all sorts of things. You read Rene Descartes' meditations, and that's exactly what he does. Hey, I've got a sufficient doubt about a very great many things, not the least of which mathematical proofs.
0: Therefore,
2: um, I doubt these. There's a sort of null hypothesis attached to this. So um, I, I don't think that this is the right program for philosophers to employ. I, and I know recently Sam Harris and um, Stephen Hawking, Leonard Mladenov, and others have tried to propose an epistemology that, that promotes science as the mechanism by which we should have true knowledge, and, and that concerns me. Um, so what about this, the hypothesis, God did it, which we should automatically be suspicious of? Well, let me just say, I adopt a sort of conservative viewpoint in terms of uh, that we should suspend Dis- we should suspend our belief about things that are extraordinary or incredible. But what you have to understand about probability theory is that um, if you say extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, as Carl Sagan and others have said, you got to know what you mean by that. And in effect, if, what I can cash out of that, I think, is that if all you mean by that is that the probability that we have evidence given the hypothesis is greater than just the evidence hanging out there but then i assume that's the measurement by which we work by that has met the extraordinary evidence challenge so if that's all that we mean i'm okay with that so what about god then um... that that god is not a good hypothesis I'm not, i didn't hear any arguments for that uh... he just said daniel just said that god did it is not very helpful it's a label of our ignorance and in effect, it's the end of investigation. Well, maybe for a scientist, but not for a metaphysician. God did it is an appeal to agential causation. That is, that a, a personal being did something or other. And that doesn't have to be a scientific principle, as long as it's a metaphysical principle. And that that not at all fly into the face of the idea that this could be a meaningful hypothesis on a metaphysical scale. If I had any reason, for example, to think that a a student of mine plagiarized uh, appealing to the person that some person did this intentionally or whatever, I don't think would count against or be a strike, an automatic strike, against the reality of a person being an explanation. So I think I need an argument for why God is not something that a metaphysician could invoke, as the conclusion of an argument, as I did in my opening uh, statement. So what about the virtue of doubt? Um, is it the evidence? In other words, it, I think we all agree that doubt is in some sense uh, a good thing in that it checks our certainty in at the door. And again, going back to Descartes, we can see the fruits of this. I don't deny that, so I won't belabor that point. But I'm not sure, when he goes into this, that changes in reality is somehow the evidence of objectivity. Uh, I'm not sure how to cash that out. It doesn't mean that in order for something to be objectively the case, maybe, real, true, not sure what he means, um, it must have some sort of testable impact. By that, I assume, observational. But once again, that collapses into a scientific naivete about what the metaphysician should do. There are a great many things that metaphysicians speculate about that have nothing to do with any impact on nature. When you're talking about consciousness, when, the, when you're talking about um, moral values, aesthetics, science itself, as a, as, a, as a discipline, in and of itself doesn't change anything. But as we all recognize, it's what people do with it. That change things. Um, doubt brings progress. Right. That's, that's, like I said, I don't disagree with that. I'm just concerned about linking that as, uh, as an evidence factor, as a way, as a means, to just say we should never, or under no circumstances, if you can doubt it, believe God doesn't exist. And I know Daniel doesn't hold that view, but one wonders why they can't go that far, because doubt becomes the sort of all-encompassing virtue, and that concerns me. Finally, parsimony. Um, I'm glad he brought this up, because that's exactly what I've been trying to suggest. You notice that when I gave my opening speech about uh, moral duties and values, his response was to opt for a very complicated conclusion. You have to, by implication, abandon the project of metaphysics and epistemology, because you have to opt for putting yourself in the position of doubting a great many things whole cloth not just moral values, and that you can't trust your intuitions, and that sort of thing. So you kind of have to be an all-encompassing skeptic here. And unless you're willing to do that, which to me is a very complicated kind of thing, then um, I I don't see any reason why the subject of God or the truth that, that objective moral, or that moral obligations only make sense in the presence of an authority that doesn't strike me as somehow problematic, but if we're saying, no, no, parsimony with respect to God as an object, well, what is more unifying than a singular cause of the universe and everything therein? Because what are the options that are on the table? I'm not so sure that that's um, leaving a good taste in our mouths. Um, and so there's this appeal, then, to uh, what I would say is Occam's razor. Could it be that God is indistinguishable from a trickster? When I run observations in the universe, you know what? Um, God seems to be lurk, hiding. He's either hiding, or he's a trickster God, I guess, is sort of the, the putative hypothesis. Um, you see, this is where parsimony links with Occam's razor. You don't assume the worst. Uh is it possible there's a trickster god? Again, nobody doubts that. Doubt is a virtue, remember. However, what is reasonable, what is probable, barring any reason to think that god is a trickster, we shouldn't therefore think that. And that was I think the illumination Descartes gave us when he posited the evil genius or the evil god and he immediately slices that off as, that's not our natural predilection in terms of what hypothesis or what object would ground um, uh, the sort of being that would create me and such. So I don't think that, um, other than a hang-up on a certain kind of epistemology, which seems to marry itself to science, uh, and, and the other supposition is, is you have to believe that a suspension of belief equals negation that is, that the object of that belief is something that doesn't exist, namely God, unless I make that e- those equations, um, it seems to me that, that atheism just hasn't given me anything that moves me. Well, that's
3: certainly fair enough. Um, you may not be moved. <laughs> that's certainly fair play. <laughs> um, Surprise, I know, yeah. <laughs> so I'd, I'd like to get to a few of your claims. Um, with, prevent, uh, pardon me, with provisional negation and suspension of disbelief, of belief, rather. Um, that is essentially the basis, yes, and that's where we get atheism, the lack of belief in any god or gods. But when we're actually looking at something, the problem is confirmation bias, is that we see patterns where they don't exist, and we hold to the null hypothesis, to negation, not as a certainty, I'm not claiming as a certainty that there is no God. I'm saying without probative evidence that there is, the conclusion until falsified would be there is not. Um, It does not follow from that that we could state definitively. Back to my example of Bigfoot, from all the evidence I've seen, I don't believe in it. I think most likely there isn't one. But I can't state that as a definite certainty. Um, I also want to correct the uh, misperception, just talking about whether of uh, their being a god is more probable than their not being a god. Um, the standard I mentioned was five standard deviations, five sigma, that the Higgs boson was built to. And that's not one, roughly a one out of two percent, a uh, one out of two chance you're bright, that's a one out of 350 million. Now, if you could provide evidence that started to rise to that level, we would have extraordinary evidence. And as for not knowing what we're looking for, depending on what you claim your God or any claimed God, whoever else claims it, can do, then we can start looking for things. If you say intercessionary prayers can heal people, great. Let's have a wide-ranging longitudinal study. Let's uh, measure every factor we can. Let's see what lies outside the norm. Let's see if it's even statistically significant. We could very easily test for the effects of God, nor uh, am I necessarily just assuming the worst or violating Occam's razor. It's a logically necessary claim that any action that disturbed reality would be sensed. We have, maybe not by us, but it is in principle able to be detected. Therefore, any deity that changed anything would leave fingerprints. The lack of those speaks to either something not existing to leave fingerprints or a being that chose not to. That's why I get the trickster concept. If it can leave evidence and decides not to, It's tricking us or hiding. If it can't leave evidence, well, then it can't interact with our world. Now, there's a question of, well, what happens to metaphysics? To be quite frank, that doesn't bother me at all. Same as the fate of philosophy. The epistemology I'm describing, which I do contend is the proper mode, has given us everything from vaccines to cell phones to airplanes to men on the moon. In short, it works. Now, Uh, we can posit anything in metaphysics depending on what we take as our givens. Things can be caused, things can't be caused, uh, everything requires a primary cause if it begins, and what have you. However, we can falsify those metaphysical principles through actual empirical observation. Um, causation, for instance, is a fiction in most, uh, cases. identity disintegrates and so on. The function, uh, again, we can have these intuitions about things, we can think we know how the world works, and time and again, we're proven wrong. Um, I could give literally dozens of uh, examples and I'll be happy as the hour winds up a bit. Um, There's also the case that even if we were to assume that our reality needed a cause, we wouldn't need to conclude that it was singular. The uh, Hindus may be right. Maybe it's uh, Vishnu, Shiva, and Brahma who created the world as their own trinity. Maybe it's there's uh, another universe where everything is self-caused and they have a computer simulation. That's what I was talking about with the bifurcation fallacy. Even if we say, well, the universe couldn't have been self-caused, that doesn't answer to what caused it. We would just know something not universe and not universe can't be made equal to God. It doesn't work like that. And if we look at modern physics, by the way, we do see uh, that the concept of creation ex nihilo is not really fictional. Uh, Stephen Hawking just argued, and it seems consistent with the math, that it's perfectly possible that we had a universe that sprang from nothingness. Uh, Vilenkin argued the same thing since the 80s. Krauss has just uh, provided mathematics that showed that the universal energy balances out to zero, uh, that we came essentially from nothing. Um, the idea that a cause would have to be singular, let alone intelligent, let alone anything like we think of our, our God concepts, isn't proven. It's not substantiated. That's the premise. That's your claim that if the world is here, then it must have a creator. But that isn't proof. That's the claim itself. Um, As for the the idea that gods can't be scientifically tested for, everything that we've seen that exists in our world that has an objective impact that is there, that whether or not we're in the matrix, that we can all measure it and come up with the same value, all of that is testable. Even so-called non-material things, like waves, those are also testable. So if you're going to claim that there are these non-testable things that go beyond our science then we need to see that they actually exist. If we were going by probability analysis, everything in our world we've ever encountered is able to be analyzed. If you're claiming there's a class of things that can't, other than simply subjective ideas, you need to provide some sort of proof that that's an actual ontological rather than a logical possibility. Again, when we're talking about things like metaphysical truths, that's, again, assuming what you're, tending, what you're intending to prove. We know that there's a discipline known as metaphysics. Whether or not it can actually achieve truth is quite another matter. And God, as I have argued, does not end up being predictive. Unless you can tell me a certain set of events and explain that with God, all we're left is saying the universe exists. It must have, because the universe exists, something has to create it, so God. That's not an explanation. We can fill in anything in that blank. We're back to the aliens in a universe where everything's self-created. It doesn't answer the question. It just says there's something that did something and we don't know what and now we're here. And it can't offer any real predictive power. If you say God exists, what does that enable me to do tomorrow other than the claimed uh, divine commanded morality or what have you? What actual testable predictions can I make with this God? How do I know that you're right instead of the Jews or the Muslims or the Hindus or the Buddhists or the pagans or anyone else? That, unfortunately, is the reason that we have to cling to the null hypothesis. And I disagree that this is at all an improper epistemology. This is the methodology of science, that claims that aren't yet proven need to be rejected. Um, And the utility of it is exactly its use in altering our lives. Um, We're here, I'm talking on a cell phone now on an internet radio program. That would not have happened if it wasn't for the methodology and the uh, epistemology that I'm discussing. We never would have gotten past phlogiston theories or thinking that the air was ether or what have you. It's only this process that has gotten us here. And I do not claim perfect or absolute epistemology. My claim is simply that my epistemology has demonstrated better Relative fitness in terms of actually affecting our lives than any theistic philosophy has.
2: Hello.
0: Yes. Oh, uh, yes. did,
2: uh-huh. did you get that? Oh, I'm okay. sorry. I, 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 I was got yeah. out there.
0: I'm I'm sorry. Did go, you go. did you lose some of that?
2: I think I just uh, uh, lost the last five seconds.
3: Okay. Um. Uh, Basically, uh, my contention there would be, uh, to sum it up in a nutshell, um, my epistemology is proven by the track record of science, which is based on the same thing, provisional negation. Um, It's shown objective impact in our lives that everyone, whether or not our reality is really real or whether we will call it, it is as real as anything else, vaccines, cell phones, all that jazz, that puts it as a more useful philosophy and a more useful explanation and prediction of reality than any
2: theistic philosophies.
0: All right, okay, Andy? thank you.
2: For, yes, uh, alright. Thanks very much. As I had anticipated, this is collapsing into a very controversial and very concerning epistemological structure that's been designed here. So let me try to uh, clarify this in in the briefest terms possible. So there's no doubt now, and you even use the the expression, epistemology is science. See, that's that's a problem. That's not what epistemologists think. That's what certain scientists think, who have an axe to grind against theism. They feel like they can, by definition, rule out the God hypothesis, quote-unquote, simply by uh, affirming that science is the only mechanism by which truth derives. I already mentioned certain truths that we can affirm that have nothing to do with science. In fact, I would go on to say that saying that science is the paradigm of epistemology is itself untestable and unfalsifiable. So that is a philosophical question. You have to just assume that in your program. Um, so you say until it's falsified, basically I need to deny it, and you've to Bigfoot cases. Yeah, this is why probability theory needs to be understood in totem. Uh, the reason why we object to Bigfoot is because we have every reason to think Bigfoot doesn't exist. It's not like it's the concept of Bigfoot in utter isolation. And, uh, and, and the reason why we can suspend or the reason why we can say, therefore, with some probability there is no Bigfoot is, like I said, we've got other reasons. Uh, whether we have them, we're cognizant of them or not, it's part of our background information that things like that are not possible or don't exist or, you know, contradict a certain physiological understanding in human evolution or what have you. It's the same thing with something like the Santa Claus or the tooth fairy or fairies in general. We know, you know, our background information is that's the sort of thing that can't exist Um, And and so we defer to that uh, without any countervailing evidence uh, in order to assess the probability that such things aren't real. So that's okay. See, absence of evidence is only evidence of absence if you have an expectation about what the evidence is supposed to do. And you were very specific in laying down your groundwork. You said it's basically got to be sensed. Any action disturbing reality should be sensed. I really disagree with that, but even worse, I'm not sure I know what that means. Do you have to have direct access to the object uh, that is disturbing reality? Well, that would rule out all historical ontologies. So what does one mean by that? That seems to be highly dubious. Moreover, is that statement true? And can that be falsified? So there's a sort of bootstrapping problem here. It's like you've got... You know, in some sense, you've got to support that epistemology, but don't go to philosophy. You better use science, which you can't do. You've got to presuppose it. So I think you're lost in a vicious cycle here. And your argument isn't going to get off the ground beyond that. Excuse me. Um, I think you just bid philosophy sayonara. (laughs) So I'll I'll take that as, okay, fine, uh, so goodbye philosophy. And I just want listeners to know that's the purchase price if we're going to adopt Daniel's atheism. Essentially, any other program of knowledge gathering assumed literally since the foundation of Western society, they're all wrong. And it's the glorious... It's, hello? Yes. Oh, sorry, I thought I was cut off.
1: Uh, am yeah, I you still on? There out. we go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You cut out for a minute. You said the glorious... Okay, so, so uh, you know, as as
2: um, Mladenov and Hawking say, you know, that science is the torchbearer of knowledge, and, and all of that gobbledygook. And believe me, they've been reamed enough by professional philosophers. I don't need to get into that debacle. Um, we must be proven wrong about our intuitions. Uh, you see, there was a... It's funny how... Uh, proof or evidence is convenient. It's like we, all we have to do is appeal to possibilities to not believe in what's intuitive to us, but yet suddenly um, proof becomes the, the paradigm or the, the, cent- the centrifuge in which we need to decide things, a la falsification. And by the way, just speaking of scientific falsification... You've got to read the literature on this, Paul Fire, Arbind, uh, Thomas Kuhn, and, and a host of others who literally think that the the, the rigid practice of, of falsificationism or falsifiability is not a good methodology in assessing probability. We've got to go to the preferred model, which is something like probabilistic induction. Um, so, uh You made mention of something about, well, you can't just say the universe exists and assume God caused it. Right. Unfortunately, I have to appeal to philosophical arguments for that, but since you've already rigged the deck that I can't do that, you have insulated your atheism. But the moment we accept philosophy, the moment that epistemology is not bound by the rigors of the boundaries of science, there are principles of first philosophy, such as everything that begins to exist has a cause. So as Immanuel Kant and others had shown, these are the sorts of things you do assume in the project of your epistemology. You have good reason to assume them. They're, yeah, intuitively obvious. Um, are there, is there empirical data? I won't get into that. But let me just say that uh, if we bring philosophy back into the equation, if we resurrect it for our discussion here, then it's not a matter of defaulting to God on pain of ignorance or as a label of ignorance. There are reasons to think that God caused the universe, if you accept the metaphysical principle that everything that begins to exist has a cause. Once you go that far, you're often on your way to a cause. And I think, Daniel, you you seeded that. You said that as long as you recognize there are possible other causes, like Vishnu, Shiva, or other gods... Yeah, well, now you're, you're dying by your own sword. You, you're not using Occam's razor conveniently here. You have to start with the singular unifying hypothesis, God. If there are subsequent evidences that we can add to the probability induction that says, no, there's a, a, a multiplicity of gods, something that David Hume threw out centuries ago, then indeed we can go in that direction. But lacking or barring such good evidence to overturn, what is most parsimonious, I'm going with that. I think God is the simpler explanation. I thank you tonight for helping us tease out a sort of cosmological argument now on top of the moral argument. So now we've got two good grounds for thinking God exists, and the purchase price is um, to be an atheist, you basically can't accept philosophy. Um.
3: Well, I I suppose you can put it that way, but again, I I do need to point out that my views are mine only. I don't speak for other atheists. I don't speak for any other atheist. I'm simply arguing where I ground my position in, but I I understand how you can get that. Um, There are a few issues, unfortunately, uh, that I need to take with some of your statements. Um, For instance, the idea, well, I did state that there might be any number of possibilities I was just pointing out that that doesn't necessarily default to one. While Occam's Occam's Razor is a guide to best practices, it doesn't state definitively what ontology is. We can't hand wave away all the other claimed gods simply because yours is unitary, nor can we say that the Muslims claim about God or the Jews claim about God is wrong where yours is right since you all suggest one God as long as we're on that topic, zero gods is more parsimonious than one and requires fewer entities, especially since it's all evidence currently points to the fact that universes can and do spontaneously create themselves. Um, that's essentially the argument and the fact that have been produced by Vilenkin by Krauss, by Hawking. Uh, with quantum vacuum fluctuations, and uh, as the has written, from literally nothing, you can get universes with Alan Guth's uh, inflationary mathematics. Um, I'd also state, uh, if we're talking, so if we're talking about the argument from contingency, the Kalam, uh, cosmological argument, it falls on those, and this is what I was talking to you about, about falsifying axioms or givens with actual empirical analysis. We know, for instance, on the quantum level, that particles pop into and out of existence all the time. We know that quantum events have probabilities, not causes. So we've negated causation and we've negated the need for something to cause anything else. In fact, and to go back to my earlier point, it's uncertainty that creates all these things, literal uncertainty, uh, as in Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, that creates enough uncertainty, enough chaos, enough difference, that we can get something out of nothing. Uncertainty isn't just an idea, it appears to be the physical basis for reality. Now we're talking a bit about intuition and how that breaks down. And this is part of why I contend that intuition is wholly and completely unsuitable and insufficient to claim any sort of knowledge. Take, for instance, our idea that someone can only be dead or alive. If we put a cat into superposition, and you know that is Schrodinger's cat, we can have it be both dead and alive at the same time. Now some might answer, oh, that's just a quirk of mathematics, that's not actually part of reality. But a couple years ago, I think it was 2010 actually, there was an experiment that showed superposition on the macroscopic level. It appears that something can both be alive and dead, both be itself and its negation at the same time. We saw from Young's experiment, also known as the experiment Two Slits, that a single particle can be in two places at the same time, can interfere with itself, can somehow create a pattern as if it was a wave even if we shoot one at a time. We know in a whole host of instances that the way we habitually see the world The way we intuit reality, our judgments are simply inaccurate. Um, And I've read Popper. I've read Kuhn. uh, That was a large part of getting my master's. Um, There are plenty of folks who say very interesting things. Um, But as for whether or not I can actually carry the burden of proof, uh, whether my claims are untestable or unfalsifiable, I deny that. I use utility as the metric. If you can provide a method that can influence human life, that can get us to the moon sooner than using the scientific method, I will happily concede that you have a more valuable method. But until then, my very life and the life of everyone I know around me depends on our modern technology, depends on that science to keep us going. And if you can't offer anything more compelling than your instinctual views on what morality is or factually incorrect views on causation, it doesn't really help. Now, as for science can only measure things, how do we prove that? That's simply a statement of method. We can't look at something if it isn't measurable. We can't see something if photons don't impact on our eyes. Um, Nor is it necessary that we observe a physical object. Uh, It would be possible to, although with equipment far more sensitive than we can probably ever develop, but it is possible to detect the gravitational effects on one particle that moved all the way across the universe. It's difficult, but not impossible. Um, So any effect would, that's why I said in principle, be able to be observed. Um, Otherwise, you would need to find some way to affect things without actually using force. Um, We can't see that happen, but again, that's a falsifiable criteria for my argument. If you could show the action of a god causing mass to change velocity, to accelerate without any force, that would at least be an argument that our understanding of the world is fairly flawed. As of yet, I've seen no such proof. Now, I've also not said that science is the only measure of truth. What I have said is that science is the relative best fit. And other claimed truths can't be verified other than by weight of popular opinion. There may be other truths. We may not have access to them. We may develop a method years from now. But when it comes to actual truth, not truth that two people can disagree on, something as rock solid as whether or not you stub your toe on a rock, that isn't up for disagreement and that we can measure with science. And that's the only thing we can use to get objective, repeatable measures so that no matter who went up, no matter what their views were, no matter what their biases or prejudice or presuppositions were, they would get the same data. And if you can't do that with claims of morality, there is no basis to trust you over anyone else's moral claims or people who claim there isn't. Now, we also get into the fact that that anything that is existent, that we've seen so far, has had those properties, that we can somehow interact with it. It's fine to suppose or even propose that there's a class of entities which are in some way immaterial or which we're unable to interact with, and there may very well be. I'm willing to grant that possibility. But the difference is, without actually being able to test for that, without being able to see if our givens are accurate, like everything must have a cause, then we're not able to see which of those claims, if any, are true. Simply because we can't say for a fact that they're false doesn't mean that any of them have to be true or might be true. Any claims that we're going to accept should be able to stand up to the same burden of proof that the Higgs was found. If it can't, that leads to the question of why on earth not? If something influences reality, how could it be harder to detect than the hardest particle to find we've ever looked for? How can it be such an issue if there's a being that influences our reality, that causes things to move, that uses force, that can somehow affect our lives? Until and unless you come up with a mechanism for altering matter, motion, whatever... It remains simply a suggestion. Um, we're also not talking can, about God can, in in isolation, it can, uh, like, like
0: Bigfoot. Hey,
1: hey, hey Dan, Daniel. Can, uh, I'm sorry. Was that okay cut? She, yeah, I was. I was just going to ask. Is it okay if Shannon responds to to a little bit of that? It's uh, been been going for a while. I just don't want things to get lost. Oh, absolutely.
3: Absolutely. Do you mind if so, I make well, one please. other uh, quick statement?
1: Sure. Sure. Go ahead okay and i'll be happy
3: to give the rest of the hour to uh and you can finish it off
1: oh no no um, yeah you okay. guys can dialogue no problem okay great i would
3: just say okay i would just say we were talking about things um that violate what we know like well bigfoot violates what we know and fairies and pixies and all that but then again so do infinite beings that have infinite power and exist outside of time so for going on that basis we would reject the god the same as for fairies because it violates everything we know. But if we have to accept a the god, then we have to accept the possibility of fairies. Maybe fairies are invisible. Maybe they can teleport. Maybe we can see them, but they use telepathy. Um, as w- if we can say, well, there's an infinite being who's infinitely powerful and such,
2: the rules are gone. Everything's on the table now. In any case, uh, you have the floor, sir. Okay. Yeah, There's uh, again, most of this can be categorized quite simply. um, This all, once again, collapses into the rigid epistemology that you have employed, Daniel, and you've made it very clear. Now you've seemed to backed away a little bit by saying, I'm not saying science is the only way, but it's the best way, barring any forthcoming alternative. I'm taking that, practically speaking, as kind of the same thing, but even that supposition is itself unscientifically verifiable or falsifiable. There's nothing about that principle that is validated by science. It is what philosophers and epistemologists do with science. So, again, you've you've got a hopeless enterprise on which you've built your empire here. So what is this empire? Why does this not carry the day? Um, Well, on the one hand, you say you you can't default the god. Uh, Occam's razor is not designed to tell you that there is only one thing. Uh, It doesn't provide positive ontologies and that sort of thing. Right. That's my point. You can't jump to Vishnu and Shiva. You shave off the individuating properties and the multiplicity factor and scale it back to a singular being. This is a negative uh, epistemological maneuver. I'm not suggesting Occam's razor proves God's existence. Second of all, you brought up spontaneous creation. Yes, I understand it's a scientific principle with interesting empirical results about uh, things like particles, antiparticles and such that come into being and then they crash, they get materialized, they crash into each other and vanish into the, to the primordial sea or whatever, the energy in which, from which they came. And, you know, Lawrence Krauss and others have been taken to task. They've been taken to the woodshed by their own and by most philosophers, in the sense that they're ambiguously defining the word nothing. And that's a problem. You see, here's where philosophy and science clashes. You've got to, you've got to demonstrate something so counterintuitive as to treat the, this nothing as a something, that it's actually a, sort of a sea of fluctuating energy that brings about uh, particles and antiparticles, It starts to sound like you say the universe came out of nothing. It sounds like the fantasy movie from the 1980s, the never-ending story. The dreaded nothing is coming over Fantasia or whatever the land is, and out of which things happen. The nothing's not a thing. When a philosopher uses nothing, they are talking about the utter absence of existence, the utter absence of, of something at all. So if that's our understanding, the natural state is nothing. So that there should be a universe, again, I'm I'm appealing to philosophy, not necessarily science here, uh, because it's a metaphysical principle that from nothing, nothing derives. Seems to me that the formation, or that the the arrival spontaneously or otherwise of a universe comports quite well with an atheistic paradigm, not an atheistic one. Probabilistically, however, I'm not arguing deductively. Thirdly, um, intuition is unsuitable, and you mentioned... Schrodinger's cat, you mentioned it as if this was a settled controversy and you're not understanding metaphysicians are still disagreeing over the metaphysical status of quantum events. Nick Herbert in his fine book out of the 1980s and other authors have written on this since then, have charted at least eight different metaphysical interpretations you can give to quantum physics. Von Neumann, for example, has a pretty radical perspective about consciousness disturbing reality. Talk about the effects, scientifically, of something that you can't directly sense, well, there you have it, if von Neumann is right. Um, four, uh, you seem to also import the notion of practicality as the test for truth. Um, I'm not sure, I, the pragmatist would argue that way, but again, you've got to show that that principle itself is true, and uh, scientifically, through the use of practicality, and that it's consistent within a paradigm you've got to now go to the altar of Kuhn and realize, hey, you're working within an incommensurable paradigm that doesn't translate well to another one. Why choose yours over another? Well, as Kuhn argues, one isn't better than another. You, you only stimulate revolutions and leave one paradigm and opt for another. One isn't qualitatively better than another, even if it can solve more problems. It's just a matter of time before it runs aground against anomalies. Um, Until it's falsified, it must be the case. Uh, Let's see. Um, I don't know if it's necessary to bring too much more. Uh, You did say something about infinite beings violate what we know. Well, sure, if your method of epistemology is strictly science, God automatically falls outside of that purview. So this ties in everything that I want to say. I understand, Daniel, that your view of atheism, your species of it, is, is pretty much singular to yours. You may be happy to know there are some that, that agree with you wholeheartedly in the things that you've said. But here's what it comes down to. The only true objections that are offered against my moral argument, and now the cosmological argument, thanks to this recent discussion, two good grounds, I think, for believing God exists, is to essentially you have to opt for science as the only method of truth-detecting. And when you do that, you realize God is not a material thing that you sense, therefore God doesn't exist. But you have to give up your, uh, all of philosophy to do that, which Daniel is willing to do. He's, he's practically shutting the door out on us. It's sayonara philosophy and metaphysics, and he's happy to do it. So, listeners, I want you to understand... I've given two grounds that comport with common sense and intuition. Daniel doesn't like that. That's okay. Reasonable people know that you give up what's obvious to you if you have counter-evidence. But that's not sufficient for Daniel's paradigm. It has to comport scientifically very rigidly under a strict and controversial notion of falsifiability. The only argument he gave for atheism is, once you're playing his game, and then you accept another dubious hypothesis, namely a suspension of, dis- a suspension of belief just is God does not exist. So you, if you're willing to literally give up the enterprise of philosophy and to make the leap, I mean, trees don't believe God exists, but trees aren't atheists, but you, can't be- you have to believe that they are, if what Daniel says is correct, so take all of this together. I think we've got a powerful case for God's existence, and I haven't seen any good, compelling, or even inkling to think that atheism, in any sense, has gotten any traction this evening. All
1: right, Daniel, take uh, take two minutes, two minutes, okay. and uh, okay. wrap us up.
2: Great. Okay.
3: I'll try to go quick then. Um, I mentioned Godel's incompleteness. No logical system can be both coherent and prove the truth value of its axioms. As such, no, science can't prove science, but logic can't prove logic. That's why we default to utility. Uh, What can make real changes in our lives that everyone can agree on, regardless of point of view. Likewise, trees don't think. Trees can't be atheist. Atheism is, though, not holding a belief. Trees can't hold any beliefs. They don't count. Um, Also, Schrodinger's cat, is not theoretical. Um, As I pointed out, we've seen it on the macroscopic level. Uh, We've put uh, electrons into superposition around two circuits. We've seen that uh, something in the middle vibrated. We're able to detect that. We're able to see it on the macroscopic level. This is not just some sort of weird math or a weird idea. Um, There's also the fact that nothing, again, is one of our linguistic fictions. Physics shows us that even completely empty space, because of uncertainty, because of doubt, will have the properties of spontaneous creation. We have an idea that there's such a thing as nothing, but the universe seems to tell us, nope, Anything is going to be filled up by necessity. And again, this isn't just math. We've seen it. We've seen virtualized photons created from the annihilation of virtual particles. We know that this goes on, that our universe appears based on these laws. And if we have to posit that there's something that existed before our universe that's necessary for it, we only need to claim the laws of physics did. Universes will then create
2: themselves. All right. It's a very you- stimulating conversation, Daniel. Thank you very much. Thank you. I'm glad you all gave me a chance to come on.
1: Uh, Daniel, we'd love to, love to have you back on in the future. You guys both did a, did a great job, and uh, this will be podcasted, so people can hear it for years down the road. And uh, Shandon, I want to thank you for, for giving your time and coming on. And uh, again, Daniel, you're, you're always welcome back, my friend, and I uh, would love to see the conversation again.
0: I appreciate it, Daniel. Thank you. very thank you. much. Thank you,
3: Fenan. I really did appreciate it. This was fun. Thank you.
1: All right. Good deal. Appreciate it. All right, folks. Uh, there you have it. Uh, good debate. Good show. And I uh, look forward to uh, having you guys next week. We are going to continue to deal with our theological and apologetic uh, issues. We have a couple of shows coming up this month. I know we've got uh, Wim Cordland coming on to do a thing uh, a program on The One True God, on a book that he just wrote, and it is going to be um, tracing monotheism historically. So that'll, that'll be a good time. So, uh, you know, I want to thank you guys for uh, for joining us. We plan to have some more debates, hopefully, uh, in the future. And uh, with that being said, facebook.com slash theology matters with the Paloos and you can check out our podcast there. Appreciate uh, everyone joining us, and we will be back again next week. Thanks. God bless.